Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, whether it be electronic or digital nowadays, or even our good old paper copy, well, you can be turning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we will meet there in just a moment. I don't know if Brian led that song on purpose. It kind of feels like an eternal summer land around here uh, these days. Most of us agree with that, but we are thankful that you are here this morning, uh, especially uh, to those who are visiting with us. We're thankful you've come our way. Uh, if you're potentially looking for a church home, you won't find a better place than this congregation of people, not because of the preacher, not because of the elders even, but just because there's a group of people here that love God and are seeking to do his will. And it is a wonderful church family, and we appreciate our, all of our prayers around here, but especially Bob's this morning and his kind words. We're missing a few this morning, certainly. Many of you probably don't pay attention to the bulletin, especially you ladies, about who's supposed to lead in our service. Uh, this morning it was supposed to be Don and three younger men who were supposed to be presiding at the table. Our three younger men are some of the ones at Rush, along with our other uh, teenagers and some of the others in Cody and Santana. By the way, uh, Santana did send a message as we were beginning to the parents that they're on their way, so we want to continue to pray for their safe trip home uh, from out in West Tennessee. But instead, we got Don and some young-ish men so, who were up here. So, uh, but there was even a Gary Grove sighting among that, and we're thankful that the Corbins are back with us. We're thankful the Groves are back with us. We're thankful a lot of our sick have been uh, back with us who aren't able to be here. It's always good, of course, to see Son as he's been struggling to get out. Miss Arlene says that she's on her own two feet this morning. We may need a new list of people to work. We may need a security detail around her to make sure she gets out okay without getting bumped or anything. Uh, but we're thankful that she's here and, and all these folks are doing better. We try to say it sometimes, but we want to pray and ask God for his help. And we do that around here, but we want to say thank you as well when we receive blessings. And we're thankful for the improvement of so many. In Romans chapter 8, in verses 31 through 39 in particular, you find some words that you're probably familiar with. It's, it's some encouragement for us from the Apostle Paul. If There's several things that are in there that we might take encouragement from. You might pick out a, a favorite verse even that you've read there. But if you really look at this section, verse number 31 really kind of sums up Paul's thoughts in this particular section. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, the, the thought process, of course, by Paul is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we face. It doesn't matter who is on the other side because we are on the winning side. If we are on God's side, then we are on the winning side. And the point is, that should give us confidence. As Christians, that should give us confidence. Now, as Christians, we sometimes struggle with confidence and sometimes it's a humility thing, and we understand that. But other times we just struggle with having the confidence in this life. Whether it's the confidence in heaven, confidence that what I'm doing is correct, we struggle with our confidence. Sadly, many Christians live a life of fear and discouragement, if you will. But that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of God. That's certainly not the message of the Apostle Paul here in this chapter, Romans chapter 8. You see, sometimes we see in life that our expectation has much to do with our contentment. Now, if you've got your outline in front of you or a bulletin and you're following along, we begin with this thought because it kind of sets the stage for us. Sometimes in our life, our expectation has much to do with our contentment. And we struggle with that because we expect certain things. We expect certain things from the preacher or the sermon, from the congregation, 
We expect certain things from our family members. We expect certain things from those that we love. And sometimes when those expectations aren't met, then we find ourselves in a state of discontentment. And so what we want to consider this morning is the fact that, yes, our expectation sometimes has a lot to do with our contentment. Do you ever feel like a failure? Do you ever feel discouraged? Unfortunately, oftentimes, many Christians, if we were to put out a survey, would check next to that question, yes. Yes, I do feel like a failure. Yes, I do feel discouraged in my daily walk. But friends and brethren, I would say as James would write about our tongue, that it shouldn't be both good and bad. These things ought not to be so. That's true for our tongue and our words, but it's the same thing that should be true for our life. For our Christian walk, we should not be discouraged or feel like a failure. We're not immune to it. It's going to happen. Don't get me wrong. Those things will come up, but it shouldn't define us. It shouldn't be our daily walk that we feel like we're constantly failing. Sometimes, though, we recognize that when we do feel this way, it happens for natural reasons. I mean, there's sometimes things happen, particular, maybe not a failure, but a discouragement. Sometimes we lose a loved one. We can't help that. They may not even could have helped that because of some kind of sickness, and we feel discouraged. But yet other times, it has to do with, with us. It has to do with our unrealistic expectations. Not just that we have upon others, but sometimes that we have upon ourselves. Unrealistic expectations. This morning, we want to think for a few moments about proper expectations in life. Let me give you an example. Think about a young person. A young person is raised oftentimes to think that police, our cops, are perfect. That, that they're, they're in charge. They're authority figures. But sometimes it doesn't take long to figure out that, yeah, they're crooked cops sometimes. Same thing might be true for a judge in that sort of legal system idea. Our judges should be held to the higher expectation. But when we find out there are dishonest judges, that sometimes brings us down. For our young people, even sometimes, they're raised to think that mom and dad are perfect, that they never mess up. What they say is always true and right. The problem with that is, is when they realize that mom and dad aren't perfect and mom and dad aren't perfect, then that can really take a blow to their life and even to their mental state when they realize that, I was raised with this expectation, but it's not possible to get there because cops aren't perfect and judges and parents aren't perfect. And so we have to have proper expectations sometimes. We would not be so soon to come upon discouragement and depression even sometimes and despair if we would set proper expectations for ourselves and even sometimes for others. When we think about our lives, we're sometimes searching for the ideal situation instead of the real situation. To go back to the police for just a moment, our ideal situation is that all of our policemen are above board and they're proper citizens and they never do anything wrong, but the truth of the matter, the real is, that's just not the case. Now those cops who are crooked may be in the minority, there may be very few of those, but yet we do come across the fact that people don't always live up to these types of, these types of expectations. So we need to recognize that in order to properly reel in our expectations, it may help us this morning if we take a look at Scripture. If we think of, Maybe the Bible has to say something about this, about helping ourselves to be content 
in life and doing so because we realize that we have to set and follow along with some proper expectations. One of those is this, and this is the thrust of the lesson and the title in your bulletin, but we need to understand this fact, that there are even some things that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, couldn't do. And if there are some things that even Jesus, the sinless Son of God, couldn't do, if there's a set of things that maybe Scripture tells us that He couldn't do, then Maybe we need to be careful that we don't hold ourselves to these unrealistic expectations as well. Now, it's important for us to note here, this is not, and don't misunderstand me, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is not saying, well, let's just completely lower our expectations, and if we set the bar so low that we just have to barely lift our foot over it, then we're good. No, the Bible sets forth its own expectations, particularly for how we should live. When it comes to obedience, there are certain things we must do. But at the same time, we sometimes will hold ourselves to some expectations that are unrealistic. And it's then when we don't meet those that we get down and we feel like a failure. And we don't want to have that feeling. It's not biblical even. God says that we are victorious in Jesus. If you were still there in Romans 8, you may be more familiar with verse number 37. That we are more than conquerors. Through him. So the language of the Bible, through the whole Bible, is that yes, we are more than conquerors. We are victorious in Jesus. And don't even miss the fact that when you go back to verse number 36, there is a mention of sheep, that we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So, in a sense, we're conquering sheep. We're victorious sheep. And that doesn't make sense to us. That doesn't sound like something, those two things don't go together. As conquering sheep. But it does remind us that it can go together when the power is in God. When the victory is in Jesus. When we realize that that is where our power comes from. That is who sets our expectations. Then we can be conquerors. And we are victorious. We think even about Gideon in Judges chapter 7 in verse number 2. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. You remember in Judges 6 and 7, as we read about Gideon, we're talking about numbers here. And Gideon's got 32,000 to begin with. You say, well, that's not a whole lot necessarily. Especially not in Judges chapter 7, when the Bible says that the Midianites are as many as the sand on the seashore. Unnumerable can't be counted is what the, the imagery is there in Judges chapter 7. Well, certainly 32,000 is not very many against the sand on the seashore. But the truth is, and the truth that we learn from this instance with Gideon is, that the power is not in the numbers, but the power is in God. That's what we're talking about this morning. The power is not just solely in me and how many pounds I can bench press or how much I can carry or how many hours I can continue working. But it's in God. God's people are victorious. And that is what we want to be reminded of this morning. Again, as we begin to think about from Scripture some things that even Jesus could not do, this is not a free pass. All right? This is not a free pass that we can live however we want to live. But even the sinless Son of God couldn't do some things. And maybe I don't need to lower the bar so far down that I can just simply glide over it 
but I need to set proper expectations. Number one, John chapter 7 in verses 1 through 5. You may recall here that Jesus is walking in Galilee. He's not walking in Judea for they're seeking to kill him. And verse number 3 says, his brothers. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And verse number 5 of John chapter 7. For even his brothers did not believe in him. The interesting thing to notice here, and thinking about things Jesus couldn't do, number 1 is, Jesus couldn't make his own family believe. He couldn't even make his own brothers believe that he was the son of God. That's interesting to consider, and it says it here very plainly in John chapter 7. But if even Jesus couldn't make his own family believe, why is it that sometimes we beat our own selves up sometimes for failing to do the same? Why is it that we have sleepless nights thinking about that? And maybe you have. Maybe all of us have spent some sleepless nights, some, some sorrow and some tears thinking about those family members and even friends that we love who won't become Christians when even Jesus couldn't do it. Now again, continuing this thought that it's, this is not a free pass, we must continue to work. This is not lowering the bar that we're not going to talk to anybody. This is not lowering the bar that we're just going to give up. We must continue to work. We must continue to try to especially teach our family. Those that we love so much. Those that we want to share a home in heaven with. Because we have been faithful and they have been faithful. But it is not always a reflection on us when we can't get them to follow Jesus. We have to realize that within ourselves. It doesn't mean don't try, but it does mean with a proper expectation that we realize that even Jesus couldn't make his own family believe. And we talked about this in the class that I was in this morning in adult classroom number one, but the idea of is God trustworthy? God showed himself to be trustworthy in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament by miracles and signs and wonders. And we look back on that and we think, well, why won't he do that today? But then we think about the rich man and Lazarus. And we think about there where the rich man who is in torment looks and says, send someone back from the dead. They will believe if you will send somebody back from the dead. It's bound to happen. They tell the rich man, no, it won't happen. They've got the prophets. They can hear the words. Friends, the same thing is true for us. We've got the prophets. We've got the Old Testament. We can see what God has done, even if he's not still working miracles today. But go back to John 7 for a moment. Jesus is there. Jesus is standing right there, and he is doing miracles. And even his own brothers won't believe. We don't need to stop teaching our family or worrying about them or praying for them or trying to teach them. But we've got to recognize that, number one, even Jesus couldn't make his own family believe. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 3, we read a familiar passage about our suffering Savior. And if you recall, this particular passage in Isaiah 53 is what the Ethiopian nobleman was looking at in Acts chapter 8. 
When Philip joins himself to that chariot and begins to preach unto him Jesus, part of the reason or part of what makes it easy is because the Ethiopian nobleman is open here to Isaiah. Now, I'm going to assume not chapter 53 because it's not numbered yet on his scroll, but he's reading from Isaiah and he's reading this passage. And Philip begins to preach unto him Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was despised and rejected of man, of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, number two this morning, Jesus couldn't avoid sadness and sorrow in his own life. We see that from time to time as we, we read. Almost everybody knows the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Everybody knows Jesus wept. So yes, we understand that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's not, of course, just talking about the instance there with Lazarus where he raises him from the dead, but thinking more specifically about his crucifixion. But think about his own family. Did Jesus spend any sleepless nights worrying about his family in tears and in sorrow over them? We may not know exactly, but there's a possibility. He could have spent lots of sleepless nights worried about those who wouldn't believe. But Jesus couldn't avoid sadness and sorrow. So again, for us, why is it that sometimes we expect life to be a bed of roses for us? To be something that's easy. And maybe, maybe you realize that. I look around this room and I see lots of people who have suffered over the years from family members, through sickness, through things that have happened. So yes, a lot of us know that we're going to suffer, but, but there are many people who don't. And when they go through suffering, it challenges their faith because they forget that even the Son of God was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why do we expect life to be a bed of roses sometimes? Is it that? Or do we understand that often sometimes the very same things, read through the Scripture, read through the Gospel accounts, the very same things that cause Jesus to be sorrowful are the very same things that we struggle with. Rejection. Family, friends, death, sickness, all of these things affected the Son of God and they affect us as well. Jesus couldn't avoid sadness. So when we struggle with it, sometimes we beat ourselves up and we think, why, why can't I get over this? I shouldn't feel this way. Well, it's a balance of, yes, we understand Jesus did and we will. And yes, we are more than conquerors. How do we find that? Well, unfortunately, sometimes it comes and it goes, but we must remember that even the Son of God could not avoid sadness. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 31. This is a free one, by the way. If you're making notes there, this is not number 3. I won't even charge you any extra for this one. But in Mark chapter 6 and verse number 31, we, I added it in a little bit later. But it says, And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For they were coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Again, this is not in your outline, but even Jesus couldn't go without rest. So why do we feel like that we have to continue on constantly? Sometimes we feel like we have to, some of that comes from because we have to keep up with others. We have to always be going to something. There's something else to attend. There's somewhere else to be. And we feel like we can go 24-7 with no rest at all. But even Jesus, who by the way, could have, I mean, it could have been set up where he could have. God could have, could have given him the special power. He could have had it, of course, or given it to himself, or he never had to rest. He was just constantly going always. But, but even the Son of God who came to this earth in the form of a man needed rest. So why do we feel like sometimes that, that we're guilty or we feel like it's, it's hard on us if we stop for a few moments and take a little bit of a break? Have you ever heard of the term burnout? It happens to preachers. 
It happens to workers. It happens to parents. It happens to anyone who goes so hard at something that they never take a little bit of a rest. And even Jesus here in Mark chapter 6, and we see in other places, even at the garden, as those apostles are, I imagine in my head, almost passed out outside there as he is going to pray. I, I can't imagine the exhaustion that it would have felt from going amongst these things. If you look there in Mark chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken, I'll turn there myself as well, but he's fixing to feed the 5,000. I mean, they're busy, folks, as it says there, coming and going. And even the Son of God realized that he had to have rest. Proper expectations. We need to have it in our life. Now we move on to number three as there is there in your bulletin. John chapter 15 and verse number 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Even Jesus couldn't avoid making enemies. Now look. We all like to be liked, right? I mean, I get it. We all want to be liked. I may be the most guilty of all at wanting to have friends and doing all I can. Look, most of you have even given me a hard time. I even avoided a whole year without wearing an Alabama shirt around here, okay? Just so you all would like me for a little bit. You know, I mean, it took me a whole year. And of course, the Wednesday night I wore it, I got a hard time. But I mean, you know, we all want to be liked. But even Jesus couldn't avoid making enemies. So why are we surprised sometimes when people hate us, and I'll even venture so far to say we're not really hated most of the time. I mean, we're really not persecuted very often, maybe in a bigger sense. When we think about even as Bob prayed for us, and we appreciate that as we said, but, but our politics and the laws, even when things go against us, and there's lots of speeches and, and hate speech and protesting and things in our world today, and people that are trying to silence God's word and Christians, I mean, that's there, and that's persecution on, on us in a sense. We don't really face it as they faced it. But Jesus gives us these words of comfort, and specifically there as he is praying in John 15, the world's going to hate us sometimes. And remember, Jesus is about to be crucified. When he's talking about hate, he's talking about the ultimate level of he's about to hang on the cross with nails in his body, bleeding, dying, being crucified. He's going through that. Yes, they hate him. But yes, the world will hate us as well. He's hated because he stands for the truth. What about that applies to us? Are we hated because we stand for the truth? Maybe, maybe not. You remember the words of Paul again in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse number 12. Yes, all, not some, but yes, all, all right, as we break the sentence down, yes, all who live godly will suffer persecution. Not just some, but all. But not just all men, all who will live godly. Are we living godly? Because if we are, we will have enemies. We want to be liked. We want to have friends. But if we're being honest, we recognize that yes, even Jesus made enemies. And we will too. Number four, John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 37. Is Jesus again with emotion with passion for the city of Jerusalem, if we could read these words as he was probably saying them, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often, like a pleading, begging parent, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. 
Even Jesus couldn't cause all men to repent. Number four. Even Jesus couldn't cause all men to repent. So sometimes we just need to be content with our best efforts. The problem with that is that's often a judgment thing. And you have to judge whether your efforts are your best. I have to judge whether my efforts are my best. The elders here have to judge whether this is the best effort we can make as a congregation in reaching out to those who are lost. But even Jesus couldn't cause all men to repent. Think about it there again. If you have time later this week to read the, con- uh, the whole context here in, Jeru- in Matthew 23, but praying over Jerusalem as a mother, as a mother would gather her children, but they would not come. The sorrow that he must have felt because we know he felt it is because he couldn't cause all men to repent. The bottom line is we can't obey for others. And we shouldn't feel bad about ourselves when others won't repent. We should still be going about doing all we can. And I've not said at every single point, proper expectation, not lower expectations. We should still be doing all we can to reach out to those who are lost, giving our money to this congregation so that the elders can take that and help teach those who are lost. Many other things that we do, carrying around with us tracts and other things that we can hand out to people that we can invite folks to our services here. But we can't cause all men to repent. If even Jesus couldn't do it, we have to realize that we're not going to be able to do it to do it as well. And then fifth and finally, You may recall in John chapter 8 and verse number 24 and in Luke 13, 3, we realize that in connection with repentance, even Jesus couldn't forgive all men of their sins. In John chapter 8 and verse number 24, he says, If you do not believe that I am or that I am he, you will die in your sins. Question, did all of those folks who heard that immediately become believers? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. What about Luke chapter 13 and verse number 3? Unless you repent, you will perish. Plain and simple. No wiggle room, no reading between the lines. Unless you repent, you will perish. Question. Did all the folks who heard that right then and there repent? No. It's not recorded for us, but I would venture to guess the answer is still no. Not everyone believed. Not everyone repented. So if even Jesus The sinless son of God could not forgive all men of their sins. And notice as it says here, though he was willing. Because we read that, that God wants all men to repent. God wants to save all of mankind. But all mankind is not going to be obedient. So if even Jesus couldn't do that, though he was willing, though he was begging and pleading it sometimes, why do we think that we can forgive those? Who will not repent. Not only here in John 8 and Luke 13. But but Jesus very often presented very plainly to these people their sad spiritual condition. But he still failed at getting them to repent. We've even created a phrase. Not necessarily just for this. But there's a phrase that, that we use. It says the ball is in your court. Or in their court. Jesus may not have used that phrase at that time. But certainly that's the idea. I am willing. I want all men to repent. I want all men to believe. But we cannot do it for them. There are some things that even Jesus could not do. And maybe the first step for us, as we take this lesson and think about application for us, 
maybe the first step to our contentment in life. And as I said, I look around the room and see those who struggle with things. But I don't know everything you struggle with. And maybe one of these things was it. Resting. Family members. Helping others believe and repent. But whatever it is, maybe the first step to our contentment is that we set proper expectations. That we get away from the unrealistic expectations that we sometimes place upon ourselves. And we realize that if Jesus couldn't do it, why do we think that we can? Now notice again, this is not just that we would sit on our hands and do nothing. This is not that we would sit on our hands and do nothing, but to realize that sometimes when we have done all that we can do, that is all that we can do. Proper expectations helps us to be content. A true servant of God, willing and ready to serve Him at all costs. When we think about true contentment, true contentment comes from being a child of God. Even beyond these expectations that we sometimes place upon ourselves, true contentment, true hope comes from being a child of God. We're about to sing the song of invitation in just a moment. Maybe you're here this morning and your discontentment, your discouragement, your despair and feeling like a failure comes simply first and foremost because you're not a Christian. You can't pillow your head at night with the peace that comes from God. From knowing that whether the Lord returns or your life is required of you even this day or this night, that you have a home in heaven and we can have that confidence. A faithful child of God can have that confidence. But first of all, you must be added to the church. You're added to the church when you're baptized for the remission of your sins. You're baptized when you follow in these other steps that are given, even as we've talked about believing and repenting and confessing before men as Jesus promised to confess us before his father. Maybe you've done that and you still feel discontent in your life. You still feel discouraged and maybe it's because of their, their sin in your life that's separating you from God. It's not that you've set uh, unrealistic expectations, but maybe you've lowered that bar so far down that there's sin in your life. And it's easy to cross that bar. But when we think about the proper expectations that are found in the Bible, and when you look into the perfect law of liberty, you realize that your life is not right with God. We're thankful for the examples that we read in Scripture of those who would return again, pray for forgiveness, and that God is faithful to do just that, that we can again walk in the light as he is in the light. The point is, is a lot of times, and ultimately it does with our salvation, fall upon us. Are you a child of God? Do you need to come back to him? We'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and ask.